Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Have I attempted in my brother's death? My brother killed a man. His fault was thought, yet his punishment is bitter death. Who sued to me for him? Who in my wrath kneeled at my feet and bid me be advised? Who spoke to me of brotherhood? Who spoke to me of love? Who told me of the poor soul did forsake that bunch? <coughs> and did fight for me. At Tewksbury, when Oxford had me down, he rescued me and said, Dear brother, live and be a king. All this from my remembrance simply plucked, and not a man of you had so much grace to put in my mind. <coughs> Proudest of you all have been beholding to him in his life, yet none of you had once begged for his life. Oh God, I fear thy justice will take hold on me and you, mine and yours for this. Oh, Elizabeth, help me to my closet. Welcome to the Plays the Thing. You have joined us for Richard the Third, Act Two. My name is Tim McIntosh, and we are joined by Emily Mayetta. Emily, I just got back. My wife and I just got back from visiting you and your family in Mead, Oregon. It's nice to see you online, though we prefer that this would be face-to-face. How are you doing? Absolutely. Doing great. You said Mead, Oregon, but I think you meant Oh my gosh. Mead, Colorado. Colorado. Why did I but say Mead? I think Mead? that might be... <laughs> Is there a Mead, Oregon? Doesn't matter. <laughs> Doesn't matter. I made a mistake. Of evidence of our tiredness. Yeah. We, we You were talking to your friend. So I have a newborn child. She's coming up on four months. You have seven children. They're not all newborns, but still you have seven. And you were recently talking to your friend, Tom. Can I just say Tom of Devochka fame? He ha- who has how many kids? He has five. And all of us are feeling the same way, which is we don't feel like we're doing anything well. <laughs> is that how you feel? I do. I do feel that way. A million things going on and only all of them at half capacity. So is this, okay, is this just adult life? And because I have had a child late, this is just like, you're kind of like, welcome to the club. This is just the way that it is. I don't know. Is it our age? Is it everything that's hitting us all at once at this age? I don't know. I was thinking maybe it's because I've got grown children, but then you've you've only got one baby and you're feeling the same. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Did Shakespeare feel like this? I wonder. He must have. He had he must have. three children. I'm doing this off the top of my head. Three children. He lost one, Hamnet, his son, and he had two other children. He was not only a playwright and an actor, but he was also a landowner. He had a lot going on. I a just, lot of balls in the air. Right. But by the evidence of his plays, he didn't 
like do anything <laughs> midway, right? I don't know. I don't know. Although, is that okay. gonna just make is that gonna just make us more depressed? Maybe it is. I will <laughs> say this. I will say this. We just covered Pericles, the play. It's not Shakespeare's best work. It's, there you go. Okay. There you go. And you go. we have done a couple of other plays recently as one-offs, and they're not the best things he's ever written. So maybe William, even William Shakespeare <laughs> suffered the kind of sort of like drowse that is doing too many things at once and doing none of them well. I, I'm strangely comforted by this. I don't even actually know that it's true, but I'm strangely comforted <laughs> by this. I'm going to be comforted too. Okay, because good. somehow we have to make it out of this out of the state. I don't like this state. I don't like this state either. It's not going to last forever. Um, Emily, I want to give an explanation for something that our listeners have probably been hearing for a while and have heard no explanation of ads at the beginning Thank of the you. podcast. Okay, right. It's even so, thrown me off. And I have done this podcast with you and I was thrown off by them. I rarely go back and listen to podcasts that I've done. I will sometimes do it to troubleshoot but I went back and listened to one recently and I was like, wait, what is the advertisement that's happening at the beginning? So here's the explanation. For the last few years, Circe, who is kind of like the platform provider for the plays, the thing, has been hosted, their podcast suite has been hosted on Acast. So it's kind of a good news, bad news. Some of Circe's shows, including this one, have a large enough audience to participate in ACAST ads. And this provides revenue to support the Circe Podcast Network and thus Circe. So we've done our best to opt out of like whatever, certain categories that are unsuitable for the podcast. <laughs> but I have gone back and listened to a couple of the podcasts, Emily. And I just want to tell you about the ads that I'm hearing on the plays, the thing. And maybe you could tell Please me do. about the ads that you're hearing. Yeah. I've heard one for cognac. I have heard that one as well. Okay. I was actually kind of flattered because because <laughs> cognac is, is a very sophisticated drink. High tastes. High tastes. High tastes. I've had <laughs> cognac like maybe once or twice in my life because I just can't afford it. But I think it's a, <laughs> I love the taste of cognac. Okay. I've also heard ads for private aviation services. I have heard those as well. We have you really? Listened, we probably listened to the same episode. Yeah. So I guess it speaks highly of the people who listen to this show. Exactly. High tastes. Right. And lots of money. Lots of money. Very. Okay. So for me, here's, here's the thing. I think that I am not a wealthy man, but I have very urbane tastes. And I'm going to say that's where our listeners are also. I, I don't know that that's true. Maybe our listeners have, you know, a lot of money, but I think we all share very urbane tastes. So that's the explanation for the advertisements you might be hearing at the beginning of this podcast. Right now, listeners are like, wait, I just heard something for, um, uh, chicken wings that I'm not, I'm, I'm listening to the wrong podcast. No, you're probably listening to the right podcast. They're just trying to, ACAST is trying to figure out who we are. So anyway, ads are always changing. Um, if you hear an ad that you are concerned about, email me 
And I'm just going to give you my private email right now. I can't believe I'm going to do this. TimAMcintosh at gmail.com. If you've got any concerns, email me and I will make sure that. It should you know, be noted that you don't have any control over ACAST. I don't sites, have any control over so, ACAST stuff, but we can yeah. ask ACAST to not advertise chicken wings to our audience. Okay. If someone has a moral or uh, aesthetic health, objection, health yeah, concern. health <laughs> objections, and they're like, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear this. We can do something about it. Um, okay, Emily, Richard the Third. We're on Act Two. A lot of our last episode was setting up the play, and we kind of jumped forward. And we left a couple of scenes on the table from Act One, and I just don't want to leave those aside. But I just want to kind of recap where we are. We entered the episode with probably the most famous opening monologue in Shakespeare's canon from Richard III, of course. Everyone knows it. This is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by our son of York. And through in, in, in that opening monologue, Richard basically states his whole goal and purpose, which is to take, to get the crown. He's going to get the crown. No one's going to stop him. He's going to do whatever it takes to get the crown. And this play is watching Richard the third get everything that he wants, the only question, which we'll talk in episodes four and five, Acts four and five, is whether or not he'll survive getting everything that he wants. But I want to go back a little bit into act one because we were so quick to kind of give the big view. I don't want to skip the last couple of scenes from act one. Um, And one of those scenes is a really famous, I don't know what you would call it, prison scene mm-hmm. from Clarence. Can you tell us who Clarence is, Emily, and what happens in this prison scene with Clarence? So Clarence, this is one of the things that makes it confusing, makes mm-hmm. all of the kings confusing because he's the Duke of Clarence, but his name is George. Yes. Right. Just like Richard is York, but he's Richard. Right. So Clarence is the second brother, second to Edward. He had gone against his brother, Edward, and then came back. And um, Edward puts him into prison, but he we already know from the first act that he's going to release him. But Richard gets involved. And Richard figures like he his, always does. Like he always does. He's going to use these events to his um, advantage. Yeah. So Edward is going to release him. He's going to make peace with Clarence. He already has, but he's really going to make peace and say, there's no hard feelings that you turned against me um, in order to try and get the crown with Warwick. I am going to take you back into my bosom. So we know that that's going to happen, but Richard is going to send two murderers. And this, so the scene um, we get the two murderers who are very, they're having a moment between themselves. Yes, they are. <laughs> they're having a moment between themselves. And there's a lot of fun wordplay yeah. in this yeah. scene. A lot of uh, a lot of rhymes and yeah. turning things around. But Clarence really thinks that Richard is on his side. And so the murderers are going to reveal to him that no, in fact, Richard has stabbed him literally. In the back. In the back. 
Um, and um, can we pause on the two murderers for a second? Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I love them. Do, I love them too. <laughs> Do they remind you of the grave diggers in Hamlet? Yes. Yeah. I was going to say that. Yeah. They're just like the grave diggers in they Hamlet. Are. They're Another unwittingly witty. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They're they're supposed to be sort of bumbling oafs, servants, uh-huh. but they're hilarious. Well, they're really and funny. one. The the second murderer, they're named first murderer and second murderer. Mm-hmm. And the second murderer really does. Uh, he shows the, you know, the, the back and forth in his own heart that everybody in England actually is feeling. Mm. So it sets up into, into scene two. We get a lot of discussion about brother against brother. And they refer to one another as brothers. And so for a while, even in this act, Clarence is saying my brother and they're talking about Richard and he's talking about Edward. Yeah. Right. So that you don't know, but you get uh, the feeling about this internecine conflict that's occurring within the house of York, which is trouble. It's it. There is so much madness caused by Richard everywhere he goes. He creates like insanity. Yeah. Um, just when the king and queen think that they kind of have their feet underneath them, he, Richard steps in and just causes chaos. And just when Clarence thinks that like, oh, I can trust Richard, Richard steps in and he stabs him in the back. Um, he's he's the devil. He is in so many he ways, he's the devil. He is. He's the he's the diabolical one casting things apart instead of bringing things together, because that is the feeling. And once we go into act two, we're going to get that, that Edward is trying. He knows he's going to die. So he is doing his utter best to make peace within the kingdom because it has been so torn apart, apart, both between um, the Duke uh, Lancaster and York, but even then with his wife's family, yeah. right? Because yeah. everybody's mad about his wife's family as well. So he's doing his best to bring uh, peace, but it is one of those questions. I think we were talking about it last time. How does retributive violence end? Because the retributive violence, retributive violence has begun and there's no way to end it, even yeah. though Edward is trying his best to do it before he knows he's going to die. So but, you get that. You get a great scene. You get a great scene. <laughs> Retributive violence, like another way of, another phrase for it is the revenge cycle. Yeah. Right? Like, let's yep. imagine, um, I mean, this happened in Kentucky in the 19th exactly. century. Exactly. Exactly. I know. Blood uh, feuds. Blood feuds. My dad was born maybe 70 years after the blood feuds of these two Kentucky families who it it began in the kind of mists of history with one family mem- member killing another family member and then the family member who was done wrong then getting retributive violence mm-hmm. like furthering the revenge cycle right um and I just have to say, like, you and I are both Christians, and we look back at Christian history, at all the things that Christian history has accomplished. This might be, for me, number one, is offering an alternative to the revenge cycle. Because once you get into the revenge cycle, 
how does it, I mean, this is, I'm just asking the question you just said, how does it ever end? Well, that is certainly what this play is exploring. That is exactly what this play end? is exploring. Totally. Totally. I mean, we've brought up Hamlet. Hamlet, in a lot of ways, is bringing up the same question mm -hmm. of father of Hamlet has been killed unjustly by mm -hmm. the brother of the father. And mm -hmm. now Hamlet is in the position where he is should, by mm -hmm. all rights, get vengeance. The, the ghost of his father has asked him to get vengeance. And of course, we know Hamlet has all sorts of questions and doubts about this. But um, the stepping in of a third party, Christ, to say, no, the blood feud ends here, is Absolutely. a massive leap forward in the history of civilization. It's hard to, it's hard to overstate what a massive um, it, it certainly moment is. this you, is. You can see it in cultures where uh, the words of Christianity come. The, you can see these things ending, right? Yeah. The tribal wars of the Germans, the tribal wars of the Anglo-Saxons, everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I'm we kind of take it, it for granted today. I mean, we well, I don't sure know about, do. We, I mean, we even, I even wonder, I'm not, now we're getting into real like speculation territory, <laughs> Emily, but I even wonder if um, the idea of a third neutral party of justice, the police force, the court yes. system are actually yes. just downstream of this belief yes. that there has to be a third party to provide some sort of reckoning for the back and forth of retributive justice. The, I Absolutely. really do think that like, that would be a great, that would be a great history to read, like how um, our notions of justice, of police force, of sheriffs, of, you know, all the different kind of um, village level sheriffs are an attempt to say, no, there can be some such thing as justice provided by a third party in which that adjudicates between the warring parties that can cause an end to this back and forth. Absolutely. And it's based on a transcendent notion that there are, there is a law that everybody is yeah. um, answerable to, right? Yeah. yeah. That's reflected from the transcendent. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, th that is part of that in here is being dealt with. And there's different voices that keep coming back and saying, um, even the even the second murderer in this scene says something very similarly, like we should not have done this. This was the wrong thing right. to do. Right. Right. I mean, um, so yes, all of that. Yes um, and amen. So Clarence dies he at does, the hands of the henchman. He does. But the the second murderer, Shakespeare does this. One of the things that I feel like in this play a little bit is I feel like Shakespeare's sometimes showing off. Do you feel that way sometimes? I, yes. I wanted you to continue your point. I feel that very strongly in this play. <laughs> yeah. So there's these great moments and they go by almost quickly. But the second murderer has in act one, scene four, around line 135, a little soliloquy on conscience. Yeah. Because the, the second murderer's conscience is being checked. He says, I'll not meddle with it. It makes a man a coward. That would be his conscience. Mm. A man cannot steal, but it accuseth him. A man cannot swear, but it checks him. 
It fills a man full of obstacles. It made me once restore a purse of gold that by chance I found. It beggars any man that keeps it. It is turned out of towns and cities for a dangerous thing. And every man that means to live well endeavors to trust to himself and live without it. Yeah. It's just... Yeah, he's just being he's being a show off. But it reminds me, do you remember that soliloquy in Macbeth on sleep? Yeah. This is like that, isn't it? I don't know. I feel like this is a prefiguring of a lot of moments to come in Shakespeare. So I wonder if I can continue your thread here. I feel like Shakespeare in the earliest plays that he wrote, and this is an early play. It's not Mm -hmm. a middle play. It's not a late play. It's an early play. It's not the earliest, but still relatively early. Is full of Shakespeare's wordplay. Yeah. He loves a quibble and he Mm -hmm. loves to just show off how he can take logic and kind of turn it inside out and right side out again through the use of multiple meanings of words. Yes. Can are you going to keep? Please, no, no, no. I won't keep, interrupt me. Well, I've got another little spot yeah, here yeah. where Clarence Clarence sees the murderers come, and he says, "In God's name, what art thou, first murderer? A man as you are, Clarence, but not as I am, royal first murderer. Nor you as we are, loyal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Classic. What a good little spot. Classic. What a good little spot. <laughs> totally. It's classic Shakespeare. It's classic yeah. Shakespeare. So I think part of his kind of whatever growth as a playwright. And I really, I'm really to even say that because he starts in a better position than almost anybody else ends at as just like a quality of a playwright. So I'm reluctant to say that, but he, part of his maturation as a playwright is I think he kind of diminishes this incredible mm-hmm. gift that he has for wordplay in favor of plot and character. Mm-hmm. He still quibbles. He still has fun with quibbles and wordplay, but he doesn't dwell on them as longly as as, as longly as long as he does. <laughs> Speaking of fouling like words, <laughs> um, he doesn't dwell as long in the middle and late plays as he does in the early plays with just showing off his mm-hmm. dexterity as mm-hmm. a poet and a, and a wordsmith. You see this with artists of all types, right? Great artists. You can see the same thing with composers where you're like, oh my gosh, the young stuff, you're just throwing it off. And as they mature, they put that in service of the deeper meaning, right? And so they're not satisfied with just showing off. They want something deeper. They want to communicate. And that's what he ends up doing in his later plays. Don't you think? Yeah, I'm thinking about- Go ahead. I'm thinking about the scene from- um, Amadeus, mm-hmm. when he has, yes, exactly. he brings in this it, it, unbelievable, is she, is she a soprano? Mm-hmm. She's mm-hmm. just the best singer, you know, in the country. Mm-hmm. And he just gives her so many notes. Da, 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 just da, to da, show off. Just yeah. to show off. And it, mm-hmm. and it kind of is like, it taxes the royal ear a little bit. It's yeah. almost yeah. too much, right? <laughs> but then in his more mature work, Mozart suppresses that natural gift in service of mm-hmm. the work itself. And I and I mm-hmm. see Shakespeare doing the same thing. There are mm-hmm. all sorts of quibbles in Hamlet and Macbeth and Coriolanus, but they serve the broader point of the mm-hmm. play. They serve the 
characters. They serve mm-hmm. the, the theme that he's drawing out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, to continue on our thought of the revenge cycle, yeah. the second murderer really gets into that with Clarence because Clarence uh, says when he knows that he's going to be killed, he says, you can't kill me. How can you kill me? I stand before the great King of Kings um, and you shall not murder. And the second murderer says, you know, funny for you to say that because you've already killed a bunch of people in the house of Lancaster. Mm. Um, and he says, you have been treacherous to your, to Edward, he, which he was. And then, um, Clarence come back and says, but wait, I, I killed, I killed Henry the sixth and the Prince of Wales for Edward, for my brother. And now I'm going to be murdered by him. Yeah. And, um, but he does make an appeal to the higher law. Right. But now they turn around and say, but how can you claim that higher law when you yourself has been, a, right. have been a party to killing. Right. Um, and then we have got another little funny wordplay. Can I just read it to you? Yeah, please do. At the end. Yeah, please do. And it's revealed that it's Gloucester that hates Clarence. And Clarence just hardly can believe it. He's like, but he said he loved me. He said he loved me. And the first murderer says, I, millstones, as he lessened us to weep. Oh, do not slander him, for he is kind, says Clarence. Mm, mm. Right. As snow in harvest. What a good line. <laughs> Come, you deceive yourself. Tis he that sends us to destroy you here. And boy, it just kills, it just kills Clarence. Right. It's Clarence an absolute really reckoning. Believed. Yeah. 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 Anyway, as right. As snow is in harvest. What a good line. It's a great line. <laughs> so th- this play in so many ways is a kind of prefiguring of civil war mm-hmm. and civil war is maybe the worst kind of war. It might not be the most destructive, although in American history, the Civil War is still the most destructive war just by the number of dead and injured soldiers in our history. More destructive than- By hundreds of thousands. By hundreds of thousands. The other part of it, in addition to just the sheer body count, is the kind of moral injury Mm -hmm. of brother having to decide against brother Mm -hmm. which way to go. Like if I had to decide Mm -hmm. against my brother, Scott, I felt like my brother, Scott was on the wrong side of a massive political disagreement. And I met him on the battlefield. There's something so horrible about that it's prospect, horrible. Right. It's horrible yeah. to face just another human being. But when you know the human being since birth, it's even more dreadful. Mm-hmm. And that's what Richard is stirring mm-hmm. up here. Mm-hmm. And that's why this last, it's terrible to read. And the second murderer repents of it. Yeah. Right. That he repents that the Duke is slain, that this has been a terrible, terrible, savage, devilish, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's it's horrible to read. And then in the next act, we get um, act two, we get his mother and his Clarence's mother, yeah. Clarence's nephew and niece, all mourning his death and his mother particularly 
morning. She doesn't know that it's been Richard, but she has suspicions. Yeah. And, she knows um, he's bad. Yeah. It's terrible. Doesn't but she? Mor- mourning this rift within a house. Like yeah. there is not meant to be a rift within a house. But it shows, I think, I mean, Shakespeare really is setting the scene for the house of Tudor to come out on top. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it is so, it, he shows like, look, even within England, Lancaster and York going back and forth, right? Those are, so that is civil war already, but right. now it's descended within a family. Now right. it's come within a family. But I think he is, it is showing uh, the evils of blood violence, right? It's showing that. It's showing the evils of civil war because you can't stop it. And Richard gets, <laughs> Richard is the diabolical one. He really is breaking things apart. Emily, I wonder if you can, so you and I just attended the Circe conference mm-hmm. and we both heard a speaker that we really admired. And he talked about the difference between, um, correct me if I'm wrong, symbol and diabolical. He did. Do you yeah, remember went- well enough to describe the difference between those two? I do. Well, we'll see. We'll see. DC Schindler, if you're listening, you can correct us. Um, symbol, he took it back to the Greek, which is symbion, which means to cast together, mm-hmm. right? So it's to the idea is to bring disparate things together, but diabolical is the opposite meaning. It is to cast things apart. Can I can I interrupt you and just say um part of what makes his vision of symbol so compelling is that we tend to think of symbol as sort of like a free floating, mm-hmm. but um, a free floating literary device yeah. that is abstract that ties two things together. So mm-hmm. we think of the locomotive as mm-hmm. a symbol of um, the industrial revolution, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And what he says, say his name again, Emily, because it's worth Schindler. These, um, you should read him. He's really, really profound. What he draws out is that symbols often in the ancient and medieval world had a much, much stronger tie to actual physical enactments between two communities or two families. And he used the example of two families that wanted to draw up a piece So they shared a meal together, and at the conclusion of the meal, they broke a bone in half. And the two parts of this bone could only come together when the two families brought each part of their bone and showed, oh yes, our forefathers broke this bone together as a symbol of the peace of the acquaintance of the contract of peace between your family and my family. And mm-hmm. if somebody else showed up with a broken bone that didn't fit our bone, it was kind of like a an enacted symbol that, no, we didn't make peace with your family. We made peace with this different family. And the only way that we actually see that is by showing these two, these two broken pieces of bone connecting to each other. So mm-hmm. that's part of what I appreciated so much about his talk is that we tend to think of symbols as pure abstractions and only done for literary uses and purposes. And he's saying, no, most symbols 
at least in the ancient and medieval world, had a much more palpable instantiation in a physical object. Well, he said everything is symbol, which is true, and that symbols surround us, but we we are deaf to the power of them still, right? So we still, the token signifies the object. Mm. And boy, Richard's family, actually, we kind of get a little bit of this in this next act. Edward is trying to bring his warring families together, right? And he asks them to come and make a symbol together of their compact that they shall be friends. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I've been thinking about that talk ever since. It's really brilliant. And And how, how needful it is for us as human beings to have a token that signifies a reality that we are living into. Right. I mean, the thing... Um, maybe the most, gosh, I wonder if this is the most potent symbol that we still have today, the wedding ring. Yes, absolutely. We come together and we exchange rings and the rings have a significance to them. They're made of gold, typically Mm -hmm. a purified substance. They Mm -hmm. are in a circle, an unending Mm -hmm. loop. Mm -hmm. And we wear them. I wear my wedding ring. My wife wears her wedding ring. We wear them all the time. It's a signifier, not just to each other, but to like the broader world that we live in, that we've made vows to each other. So yes, all of that is a setup for Mm. diabolical. Exactly. The opposite of symbol. The casting apart. Do you remember what DC Schindler said well enough to talk about what diabolical means you know i took a baby out right at that point oh, yeah. <laughs> i mean it literally <laughs> but it does literally mean to cast apart yeah so i mean i think that that's that's part of when you say diabolical it was you know it's another theme evil has no substance it can only uh work on the good, right? It can only disassemble. You can think of that even at the beginning of the Silmarillion with the creation myth mm, that Tolkien weaves, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, who's the bad guy? <laughs> uh, Sauron. But it's not Sauron, it's somebody oh, like else. Proto, like before Sauron yes. becomes Sauron. Yeah, I don't remember his name. Okay, I'm not a Tolkien geek, but whatever his name is, yeah. the bad guy. He can't sing his own song. He can only take a t- uh, the part of the melody that's being sung at creation and turn it in a different direction, which keeps getting woven back into the song of creation, right? Mm. That the, um, that God is singing. So, I mean, but I think that that's another, that's the diabolical, like there's no creative energy on its own. It's only an undoing of the good. And I've actually, got a line Rich, Richard's from, like that. Absolutely. I've got a line from act two, scene two. So awesome. Richard's mother yeah, about the death of Clarence, yeah. Has lines. So she is beginning to really suspect Richard and beginning to develop some contempt for him. And she has lines, act two, scene two, lines 51 through 53. But now two mirrors of his princely semblance are cracked in pieces. Yeah. Right? Yeah. By malignant death and I for comfort have but one false glass that grieves me when I see my shame in him. Ooh, it's, it's tough, huh? It's tough and it's diabolical. It's tough. like the diabolical, it it's, like it's the casting perfect. into pieces, yeah. what mm-hmm. the symbol unites. Yes. This is 
and cracked in pieces by malignant death and I for comfort have but one false glass that grieves me when I see my shame in him. Yep. That's perfect. Nice job. Oh, thank nice you. Job. Thank yeah, you. That's great. That's great. <laughs> um, so Richard in cahoots with his friends is creating madness everywhere that he goes. And by the end of this scene, I'll back up. He has promised us, his audience, that he will get the crown. Can I do all mm-hmm. this and not catch the crown? Tut, tut. Were it further off, I'd pluck it down. He mm-hmm. is reaching for that crown. And in act two, he gets much, much closer mm-hmm. sure to does. plucking down the crown. So let's remember what he has accomplished in this. Okay, I, w- I want to go back to something that we said earlier on during Act One. There's something kind of perverse in us that says, gosh, he's terrible, he's demonic, he's diabolical, and there's some sort of weird delight that we get in watching him <laughs> accomplish these terrible ends, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You said, well, that, in the, you said that in the first act. You have to stand by it, Emily. You said it in the first act, but now you're like, oh, he's so disgusting. I don't even want to admit he's it. He's so awful. Well, I think that I felt this way even the first time that I watched it. The, in the first act, there is a lot of almost pity for him because you sense how he's been right. mistreated. Right. right? Um, but in the second act, for me, it's in act two, scene one. He has a long, a long soliloquy on how he is such a good man. Um, you know, he begs the queen who he has been very opposed to, begs her forgiveness. Um, he says here at the end, I just have to read this. Yeah. It's so if ever any grudge were lodged between us of you and of you, Lord Rivers and of Dorset, um, Elizabeth's relatives, that all without dessert have frowned on me, dukes, earls, lords, gentlemen, indeed of all. I do not know that Englishman alive, with whom my soul is at any jot at odds, more than the infant that is born tonight. I thank my God for my humility. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you're like, you're like, okay, so, bro. Oh, but now, but now it's becoming cloying because you know. So I know, I, I I know I have to stand by it, but it does lessen as it goes on because you get, well, because the bodies start to mount, right? First, yes, so right. it's all well and good before right. he's killed people, but now he's killed Clarence. And now we know he is acting so holy, but he's going to kill those little boys. Yeah. Well, right. at least in, at least in Shakespeare's estimation, he kills the little boys. Right. That, Whether that or not that's line, historically accurate is another question, but within yes. the kind of like rubric of the play, that's the plan. That that's and he's going to do it. Right. Right. Yeah. Can I, I before we go on? I just want to observe something. I I have been thinking a lot because of this conference that you and I attended about power. Mm-hmm. The theme of the Circe Conference, mm-hmm. the National Conference this year, was power. And of course, I think about how Shakespeare thinks about power. And what I want to acknowledge in Richard III is that whenever Richard needs to make a play, whenever he needs to get his way and he gets cornered, he has something at his disposal, which is he plays the victim. 
He sure does. He plays the victim so he sure does. so well. He sure does. He's going to do it right after that, right after I thank my God for my humility, because then Elizabeth says something about Clarence and he says, oh, but but Clarence is dead. And he he um, is able to take the situation and turn it, even though he's the one that I know, I know, I know he turns it. And um, because Elizabeth's family had been calling for Clarence to be murdered now it appears that Elizabeth's family has won. So this great piece that Edward is trying to bring about now is getting turned with against um, Elizabeth's family, who Edward is trying desperately to bring peace. Bring between. things together, right. Um, and so now everybody, well, and Edward feels guilt. Everybody feels guilt. And Edward horribly feels guilt because he thinks that it's because of him because they didn't um, rescind the order quick enough, but no, it was rescinded, Uh but Oh, it's so, we're just going to have to say it again. It's so diabolical. So so do you feel feel the same way about Richard through the entire play? Cause I think I feel that mainly in act one. I'm just going to say that. No, I agree. This is the part of the play where it's hardest to keep your, I don't want to say allegiance, but he, okay, okay, let me pause. (laughs) Part of the genius of this play is that opening monologue where he invites us in. Oh, good. And he tells us all of his shortcomings. He tells us all of his failures. He tells us how he's been born deformed and he brings us close to him even while he's telling us the slaughter and mayhem that he's going to bring about while he snatches the crown, right? And there's yeah. part of us in that opening monologue that we're like, oh, I kind of feel sorry for you. And I also I admire your extreme brazen courage that you're just going to go after what you want. So that's, I think, how we feel in act one, scene one. It continues when he meets and woos Lady Anne. You're like, oh my yeah. gosh, this guy's got the skills. He has so He's just great. He is the best wooer we have ever seen. He killed Lady Anne's Truly. father and husband, and yeah. he woos her. And we're kind of like, I would have fallen for it myself. He's yeah. that good, right? Yep. Since then, though, I think we're kind of um, on a downward trajectory in our affection for Richard. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but again, I have to say, Shakespeare. Our man is, I think he recognizes his audience could fall completely out of love with Richard. And in act three and in act four, he's going to bring Richard close enough to the crown. He's going to give Richard the crown Mm -hmm. so that we, our admiration for him is kind of like kindled again. You Mm -hmm. got what you said you were going to get. Mm -hmm. Respect, bro. Mm-hmm. So much respect. And now in the like second half of the act, excuse me, of the play, um, we are now going to see far- forces marshalling against Richard. And we're going to again have sympathize with him in his attempt to keep what he got. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's yeah. a marvelous bit of plotting to to make the most diabolical, 
the most <laughs> devilish character in Shakespeare's whole corpus still be a beloved figure almost through the whole play. It's, it's yeah. amazing. It's amazing. It is. It is because even here, that's why it takes a really good Richard to pull it off because yeah. the speech that he gives where he is acting so, um, what, what's the word? Sincere, so mm-hmm. sincere and so good hearted. And of course, we already know that Clarence believed that. And yeah. so he's playing this piece, uh, the brilliance of it, the way he the way he is able to get in that Clarence has died in such a way that it casts doubt on all of Elizabeth's family. Right. It casts in doubt right. this whole thing that Edward has been bringing together. You're like, yeah, he's the smartest guy in the room. He's definitely the smartest guy in the room. He is. He <laughs> and is. he's playing. The other thing that's terrible about Richard is that he's playing on everybody's best intentions, which is what's going to come up later in the act. Because he's going to say, oh, we've all sworn loyalty. We shouldn't send a large group to escort the princes because that would look like we don't believe in this trust we've established. It's such a great, politically, it is such a, a touch of genius. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Just to catch everybody up. And I think like Emily, I think we should kind of like I'm Sorry, I just jumped. I no, jumped no, 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 no. I think we should move toward the close here. R- young Prince Edward, named after his father, his father yep. is now deceased, is the heir to the throne and he must be called to England and crowned, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody knows this. And yes. Richard and his buddy Buckingham smoothly so smoothly agree yeah the prince should be taken to england to to, to london but like you just said only a few people should go with him you guys you know it's a vote of confidence yeah we trust each other trust each other and if we send a big group yeah it's gonna look like we don't trust each other and lord river says no wait a second we should send a big group Oh, no. So, yeah. and Richard and Buckingham are like, you know what? As part of that small group, we've got a great idea. It's going to be us. It'll be us. It'll be us. It'll be great. We'll <laughs> escort King Edward's heir, Prince Edward, to London. Nothing Wonderful. to worry about here. Nothing can go wrong. <laughs> Nothing can go wrong. Um, but we did skip, we did skip the Duchess of York. Well, we yeah. talked about her a bit, but but we've had now two older women, one in the Queen Margaret in the first scene, and now we have the Duchess of York in this scene. And both of them, Duchess of York, Richard's mother, both of them throw, cast out on Richard. Well, I mean, just as you read, the cracked, the mirror, right, I've right. only got one false glass and it grieves me that this is my child. I've lost my two that, you know, should have been here. And now all I have left. So it is also, I think Shakespeare likes those older women. I was thinking of Paulina in Winter's Tale. Right. She plays a similar role. Right. Um, the voice of, I don't know, sobriety, I guess. Uh-huh. And- but, they, but they seem out of step in, in the moment because they're the ones saying, no, this is wrong. You're terrible. But Richard is uh, is stirring up all of these feelings of love and brotherhood, and we're so committed to one another. Yeah. And it's these two women saying, "No, don't." Right, right. Like Which is Paulina, interesting. Like Paulina in a Winter's Tale, as how do you say this? They're the ones who kind of step forward against power. power. Honestly, against power. Yes. 
And All they're the ones who speak up. Yeah. It's interesting that Shakespeare has settled upon that in both instances, isn't it? It is. Do you make anything of, of it that they are... Is there anything about them being females and kind I'm, I'm going to sound like some sort yeah. of like postmodern dork for a second outside <laughs> the power structure? No, I think you're right. I think you're right. In all three instances, they're calling to mind the bonds of fealty and of family. All three instances, right? And they're saying, you have gone against this. And... um the the men in the power structure and Richard and even Margaret in that first scene, Queen Margaret, she's saying, look, you're all rotten. You've all done terrible things. You should repent and start over. And the Duchess of York is saying much the same. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's a valid point. They're the ones recalling the bonds of fealty. That's what I want to say. Yeah. Because yeah. it's still this is a feudal society, right? It's still a feudal society and you should be committed to your sworn leash. And the Duchess of York says, hey, my husband started this in some ways by going against the anointed king. Right. She she does bring she, it back she to She owns him. it. She acknowledges. But now it's come within her family. And she, she is piteous. And she says, uh, she almost sounds like Rachel from the Bible. I will sing. I will pamper it with lamentation. I am mm. your sorrow's nurse. I am your sorrow's nurse and I will pamper it with lamentation. The act ends as um as Richard and Buckingham are making plans to escort Prince Edward to London. We hear these three citizens, it's a lovely little scene, these three citizens discuss <laughs> the possibility of a tumultuous succession of Prince Edward. And as Queen Elizabeth, kind of at the draw of the close of Act Two, awaiting Queen Elizabeth awaits the arrival of Prince Edward. News arrives. What does the news say? Richard has Messenger. imprisoned. Yep, Richard has imprisoned her brothers Rivers, her son Gray, and Sir Thomas Vaughan. The overthrow is now plainly afoot. So Queen Elizabeth rushes to sanctuary with her son, the Duke of York. And we are facing at the beginning of Act Three the possibility of overthrow, doom, rapid decay. Yeah. That's where we are, Emily. Elizabeth says, insulting tyranny begins to jut. Yes. And Duchess of York says, make war upon themselves, brother to brother, blood to blood, self against self. Mm -hmm. Oh, preposterous and frantic outrage, end thy damned spleen. Or let me die to look on death no more. Ooh. It's bad. It's intense. It's super intense. <laughs> it's super intense. Okay, so act three, to look forward a little bit, Richard has the upper hand. The thing that we thought impossible, that he get the crown, is beginning in act three a plain possibility and he will achieve it and by he the will end. achieve it he will achieve by the it end of by act the end. three yeah so what we should look for in act three is okay how does he tie this plot in a bow that mm -hmm. he gets what he wants that's what we should mm -hmm. look for in act three and as emily said he's going to get it 
So Acts 4 and 5, now that he's got it, what's he going to do with it, right? But we can worry about that later. Let's just worry about for our next act, how is he actually going to pull off the last stage of this coup? And it's this is probably the hardest act because of the young boys mm-hmm. that he imprisons. Mm-hmm. And, and we have, they're, they're in a scene in, in act three. Yeah. Yeah. So if you need yeah. to fast forward, we get it. <laughs> we get it. <laughs> um, Emily, thanks for joining us for act two. And everyone, thank you for um, tuning in. It was so rewarding to hear from listeners at the Circe conference. I do this podcast because I love Shakespeare and I think I would do it if the listenership was a total of three listeners. But it's really nice to hear from people who tune in frequently or for every podcast. Um, And I want to say things, especially of Matt Huff. Thanks so much. Yeah, hey, Matt. Right, hey, Matt. Um, And please tune in next week for Act 3 of Richard 3 as Richard gets the crown. Emily, thanks so much for being here. It was great to be with you, Tim. I cannot think it. (laughs) What noise is this? Who shall hinder me to wail and weep, to chide my fortune and torment myself? I'll join with black despair against my soul, and to myself become an enemy. What means this scene of rude impatience? To make an act of tragic violence. Edward, my lord, thy son, our king, is dead. (laughs) Why grow the branches when the root is gone? Why wither not the leaves that want their sap? If you will live, lament. If die, be brief, that our swift-winged souls may catch the kings, or like obedient subjects, follow him to his new kingdom of ne'er changing night. So much interest have I in thy sorrow as I have title in thy noble husband. I have bewept a worthy husband's death and lived with looking on his images, but now... Two mirrors of his princely semblance are cracked in pieces by malignant death. And I to comfort her but one false glass that grieves me when I see my shame in him. Thou art a widow, yet thou art a mother and hast the comfort of thy children left. But death has snatched my husband from mine arms and plucked two crutches from my feeble hands, Clarence and Edward. Oh, what cause have I, thine being but a moiety of my moan, to overgo thy woes and drown thy cries? <laughs> Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. 
Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.